and he planted a vineyard. So this call to work, the same call that Noah had of, of, of cultivation, of, of creation, of work, we see Noah moving forward in the same call of cultivating the earth, of working this vineyard. And so Noah is, is called forth. And we see in here God already being true to his covenant promise. Remember in chapter 8, verse 22, through the poetic way he ends that covenant, he talks about as long as the earth remains, as long as there's night, there's day, there's summer, and there's winter, there's seed time, and there's harvest. This sort of common grace given to all creation of a pattern of predictability of this earth that will allow us to fulfill our commission to God, be fruitful, multiply, and cultivate and create. God, not undermine what we know that nothing is a given, and God bringing to our lives whatever. But at the same time, there is a predictability. There is a pattern that God covenants with us and sets forth. The sun's going to rise in the morning, set in the evening. The seasons will come. There will be a time for seed time, a time for harvest. And there will be a time when the fruits of that labor are realized. And Noah begins in this pattern of living. The sun, the rain, everything for his vines to grow. You see the fruit of that vines. This pattern of living that we still enjoy. And then we come to verse 21, and the story just really goes off the rails, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you find Noah drunk and naked in his tent. Again, so we have an inability to, to take God's gifts and use them in the way that he God. He takes God's gifts and uses them selfishly. He, he uses them in a way that corrupts the image of God and him. And Noah does the same thing. He takes God's good gifts and he doesn't use them well. He uses them in a selfish, in a sinful way. So, so we get the picture here. We have this picture leading up to the story of, of Noah and his family. The flood has receded. Here they emerge from the ark, sort of victorious in the sunlight, and he offers immediately this sacrifice unto God, and it's received by God, and it is sweet unto the Lord, and he responds to this covenant made with Noah, and these promises set forth, and to bolster and strengthen Noah and these covenant promises, he sets the rainbow in the sky, and this promise that he will withhold judgment from the people of the earth, and that he will make this sort of universal covenant with all of creation, and he will allow them to, in this, to flourish in, in this setting, in this arena, and he will send judgment as long as the earth remains. And you have this picture that Noah and his sons going forth, and Noah beginning his work of cultivating, and boom. We're hit with this episode. I always think when you come to sort of awkward or, or stories like this in the scripture, it speaks to the the truth or reliability of the scripture, doesn't it? I mean, if you were going to paint a picture of, of Noah and you're making up a story of some hero that didn't do the flood or whatever, is this the first story you tell after that? About getting drunk and being in the tent? No, it, the scripture speaks to the truth of human condition. It's dependable as it speaks to the reality of man. It allows us to, to look into it and to see just the messiness of sin and humanity and the grace of God that speaks into it. We see it in this incident. So I really want to just do 
a couple things. We'll, we'll kind of walk through and get a, a quick picture of what is and isn't taking place here in this story, and then we'll lift three observations from it that I think are going to be trying God is communicating to us the way this place, the way this story is told. So the first part is pretty obvious. Noah grows a vineyard. He has too much to drink. He is passing out drunk, hot mess. He passes out drunk, throws his arm off, and finds naked. It's ten. But then Ham, the youngest of his sons, comes by and he sees him in his tent. His eyes rest on him. He sees him, and he doesn't do anything for his father. He doesn't cover shame, he doesn't take any action to help his father out. Instead, he, he leaves and he finds his brothers and he tells his brothers, hey, this is going on with that. And his brothers, if you get that story, they, they take the garment, they come to the tent, they kind of like back in or turn their eyes away from looking upon, adding to the embarrassment of Noah by seeing him in this position. They take the garment and cover up his nakedness and shame. Noah finds out about it, we know it's not, we're not told out, he finds out about it immediately, and then you kind of have this curse and this blessing that's presented here. It, it's interesting, because these are the first words that we have recorded that, that Noah spoke. It's also the first real prophecy in Scripture. God makes the promise in Genesis 3.15, if you remember about um, the one he will, he will send to crush the head of the serpent. But that's God speaking Covenantal Here's the first time the command offers a prophecy. And we really should see it that way, I think. It is Noah receiving a word from the Lord and speaking prophetically, not an embarrassed, angry, vindictive dad who's now lashing out at his kid because of what just happened. It is a prophetic voice. We'll see it, we'll look at it a little bit, how it really sets us up um, for the, the future narrative of the Old Testament, God's redemption. Nations. I've had a couple people ask me this week, last week, if they knew this text was coming up, that, you know, what was so bad about what Ham did? You know, when you look at it, doesn't it feel like, I mean, Noah, really, shouldn't he be the bad guy in the story? Not Ham. So I think there's many suggestions of what happened. Some suggest that there was something sexual took place. I think that's reading too much into the text. I think the base of it is that Ham dishonored his father. He did not honor his father. And the way we see it is the comparison of the two between Ham and then his brothers. And as you compare the two, you, you kind of see the emphasis that's put on it. First of all, the Ham comes and he gazes upon his father. I don't know how long he's out there looking at him, but, but the, he didn't turn away. He added to the embarrassment, the shame that was that Noah found himself in by just sitting there looking at and then instead of taking any sort of action to cover that shame, to hide that embarrassment in any way, instead he just leaves. And, and, and what does he do? He leaves and he gossips or he spreads the word about it. And we see that action set in juxtaposition to the brothers and all of the steps that they took, which are the exact opposite. They don't look upon him to add to his embarrassment. They take the garment, they cover his, his nakedness, cover his embarrassment, cover his shame. There's a little linguistic thing that I think is, is helpful in it. When it speaks about that they took a, a garment, it's, it's a, 
definite um, article that it says that they, they took the garment. Has the idea, I think, of, of him maybe walking in and seeing his father naked there and seeing a garment instead of covering his father with it, he takes it. And his brothers then see it, and they take the garment. They, they take the garment that Noah had, and they bring it back in, and they cover him up with it. So it's not that, you know, Ham just couldn't find an appropriate covering, and so he got his brothers to get one day. It, it's sort of clearly set up in the mirror before it's supposed to take place here. So that's, I think, the breadth of what's taking place. And I think from it, from this part of Genesis 9, before we sort of move into the section. We finish here with Noah. There's three things that are lifted out of the text for us to consider. First is this. Honor your father and mother. The sin of Ham not honoring his father is what is the central of what's key here. Moses doesn't do, doesn't try to cover up Noah's you know, paint him in any good light. I mean, Noah looks bad in this picture. So I think there's a comment to be made up from this. I'll make a comment on it, but I don't feel like it's part of the major push of this passage. And it is this, that drunkenness is a sin. What God gives is something good, something that is a gift. It talks about gladdening the heart. It's throughout Scripture, you know, it talks about the joy of life, and the good things of life, and the gladness of the soul. It's often pictured with wine, with strong drink in this way. Something good that God gives to us. Isaiah gave this. He would speak about, you know, it, it foreshadowed sort of the gospel, speaking about the milk and then the bread and then the meat. And then what's added from that joy of life, he describes it in wine, that idea. And yet, constantly alongside of it, drunkenness is always condemned. Uh, you know, you'll see another picture here of a father in front of his daughters who was drunk, the debauchery that takes place. As we look at Lot, just seven, I mean, seven chapters later, eight chapters later, Genesis 17. I think when it comes to drunkenness, we often get lost in sort of this, you know, worthless debate in some sense of, well, where is the line then? If it's a glass of heart, then it's like, you know, where does it cross over from being a buzz to being but where can I draw that line? What what is appropriate? What what is not? We, or some people will. What if like you know you did overindulge here or there, but it's not a lifestyle of drunkenness? What, what is being communicated here? I would just say I think you're missing the point when you're coming trying to find the fine line of where you can push it. I'd say that almost every time the drunkenness comes up, you're having to address it. As pastors, who's addressed in their life? Rarely is it just the only issue here is that they drink too much. It's all the accompanying sins. It's the, the, the sin of drunkenness that, that opens up to all of these other things. It opens up to, to abusiveness. It opens up to abusiveness in language. That becomes a pathway and opens up to sexual sin and being unwise. That opens you up to not being available to your wife, to your kids. Uh, that doesn't allow you to deal with others in your life because you're escaping and hiding it by taking it to the bottom of us. We see with Noah. Again, he doesn't sit here long, but it paints another picture of Noah that, that does open up for other sin to enter in. But where he really comes down then 
is on him, not honoring his parents, not honoring his father. And I think our impulse is see, like, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal at hand. It feels like the punishment was much greater than the sin. I think it forces us to say, because we don't take as seriously as we should the call to honor our parents, the call to honor your father and your mother. Most kids are out of class. I'll speak to them more in the sense of, of calling parents to teach their kids to honor them. It is so important. Scripture, as it starts to build, it, it, calling a child to honor their parents, or a child to dishonor their parents, to disrespect, to live in a way where they do little, where they disregard, put violent in either speech or action towards their parents, is met with severe penalty in the Old Testament. You come to the Ten Commandments, and it's right there in the middle of the Fifth Commandment. You remember that the first commandment, but the one that is attached with a promise. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. That, that you may dwell in, in, in prosperity, that, that you will find success, that you will dwell among the people of God in a healthy and successful way. To be lax on your kids and not call them to some measure of respect and honor and obedience is does more of a disservice for them. It is not always just like about you. God has placed them, placed you in a position of authority in their lives. And he has you there for their good, for their sanctification, for their growth. And he calls you to acquire honor obedience because of your position of authority in your life. Now, you know, like anything, there's obviously caveats to be made here and there of um, you know, parents who are completely not present and who are just abusive and jerky towards their, their kids. And so, you know, I get it that there's caveats here and there. But as parents, we should Demand, teach, require, honor, and obedience from our kids for their own good, for their own success. The New Testament continues in Ephesians 6, 1 and 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment of promise that it may go well with you. That you may live long in the land, Colossians 3 20. Children, obey your parents and everything. This pleases God. I think there's two comments as parents. First of all, you know, don't make it difficult for your children's honor. Don't make it difficult for them to obey you. You see it's connected. In fact, in Ephesians, if you continue reading on, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That idea of, of, of provoking, provoking them to wrath, provoking in them wrong reactions, you see that when you show a kid one child favoritism over the other. Or when you're inconsistent. We're all inconsistent as, as parents at some level. I understand that. But when you just are, are, have no sort of set instruction of this which is how you feel is how you parent that day. When your own failures and your own problems are taken out on your children. 
As parents, you need to be thoughtful. You can't be lazy. You have to be careful in getting, teaching your children obedience and honor and respect. And at the same time, parents, because you don't do it perfectly, parent, and you don't, it doesn't like let your children off the hook for obeying you and honor. I think sometimes that's the impulse. It's like, you know, we feel like guilty that you know we're whatever it is how we fail, and so we punish ourselves by just letting our children you know do whatever they want. They can just disregard us. They can just whatever it might be. I think the Heidelberg Catechism, if you remember going through this question a few weeks ago, is helpful. It says, what is God's will for you in the fifth commandment? It says that I honor, love, and be loyal to my father and mother, and all those in authority over me, that I submit myself in proper obedience to all their good teaching and discipline, and also that I be patient with their weaknesses and shortcomings, for through them, God chooses to rule us. It's big time consequences for him, because it is big time important that we honor our parents and that we teach our kids to obey and to honor us. Again, I don't need to paint a picture for you. Here's one. I'm not talking about you walk around the mound and they bow down to you and you can't have anything to do. I'm talking about a child who, who listens, who you don't let just disregard your word and do what they think is best, but that you instruct, discipline, form, you shape. Alright, second observation, because we get then down to the, the cursing and the blessing here, is that the, the curse and the blessing set up for us the outflow of the redemptive history. So immediately from the flood, you kind of have all of creation, unity of mankind spoke to all of creation. God is giving common grace to He is, he is making this covenant with them. All of creation. So we see right off of that, all of creation has, you know, the same dignity and worth, made in the image of God, the, the same commission that is given to them, the same opportunity to cultivate and to, and to create. There, there's a commonality. All of us have the exact same need. Sin is still present. All of us have the same hope. Jesus Christ is the only hope for that. And so there is this universal commonality, the unity of mankind. And goes forth. But then we get to here and we see that there are the people of God, and there's the people who are outside of His grace. That He deals with and, and He interacts with His church differently than what the New Testament call the world, the church and the world. And you start to see from the beginning there's this sort of universal grace that God gives to mankind, and there is a special grace that is given to His people, to those who hear His voice and respond. In faith, his sheep. Maybe those who hear the word of God, they reject it, they turn from it, they disregard it, and follow something totally different. And it's going to work out in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in its way that in this world is passing away, there's a unity among mankind, but there's also people who belong to the age to come, and people who have given to their hearts this age that is passing away. God's going to deal differently with those groups. And it matters to you which group you are part of. Are you hearing God's word and responding in faith? Are you 
gracious covenant, or are you going to reject it and experience his curse? Because then within this sort of foundational covenant made with Noah, there are two paths that lead to cursing and lead to blessing. Look, blessing with a curse here starts pointed at Canaan. You might be surprised that you know Ham sins and then it's his son, Canaan, and that line that experiences curse. But we should see this coming. And in verse 18, Shem, Ham, and Jacob. Oh, by the way, Ham, the father of Canaan. Again, then in verse 22, and Ham, that is the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers. It's not that Ham escapes any sort of judgment. But it is given passed down to Canaan specifically, and it foreshadows for us a couple of things. It foreshadows the role that Canaan will play standing opposed to the people of God. It foreshadows the wickedness that will come to be associated with the people of Canaan. We'll see as early as Genesis 15, marked by sort of the sexual depravity, even in their worship of false pagan gods. And it becomes a sort of outright rejection of God that Canaan symbolizes. And, and you'll see that grow and develop that in Old Testament history. And then you'll see the people of God through the conquest. As they come in, as they get through the wilderness, and they go in and they conquer the land of Canaan. You'll begin to see this prophecy being resolved, coming to fruition in the land of Canaan. The blessing of Shem is interesting. He curses Canaan and then he comes Shem, and he really blesses the Lord, doesn't he? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. It speaks to God's graciousness, God's favor that rests upon Shem. But blessed be the God, and it speaks of some sort of relationship already of, of, of faith, that there's some covenant now that, that Shem and God enter into of, of, of God being gracious, Shem responding in faith. And so he speaks to them, and it speaks to this gracious covenant of those who God's grace rests upon, who, who respond in faith, who respond in obedience. And we're going to see then this worked out with the people of Israel. Really, as you move forward, especially the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, seen through the lens of a few primary patriarchs from the line of Shem, as God works out his covenant of grace with the people of Israel. It was from the line of Shem. The Savior will come. And then Japheth is blessed, but he's sort of blessed in Shem, through Shem. It's not necessarily a direct fulfillment of this in the Old Testament. As we come to the New Testament, we see it in Ephesians 3, verse 6, the coming of the Gentiles and the people of God. Plus, Japheth finds who we are. The Gentiles belong to the God, he would extend, he would include them, bring them into the line of promise. So in this cursing and blessing is set up for us with this truth of God's people, those who stand against God, and how his redemption will work, and how people will fight, and how the end depending on God's grace in your life, the response of faith that grace, and you will experience blessing, and you will experience cursing. I think it is interesting just to know real quick that even though it came in, it's not the individuals 
seeing and hear God's word respond to faith or outside of grace. You know, Jesus has kingdom heritage, lineage, his birth, his great, 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 great grandmother was right at the harvest of the kingdom. Here's God's word, responds in faith. And faith is praise. She has a place in the theology of Savior. So the cycle of unbelief, the curses, can be broken. How am I possible to do Finally, the last observation is this, and that is that Noah is not the promise. It's just square in the face. Now we say, of course it's not. But the way the text sets up for us pushes us to ask this question. If you just flip back to Genesis 5, the birth of Noah, of this, we kind of going through the genealogy here. Verse 28, Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son. He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground of the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. The name Noah means rest or comfort. He hears a son who is coming, and he will bring us relief. He will bring us rest. He will bring us comfort. In language, it almost sounds like reversing the curse. Relieve us from the curse, from the toil of the ground, from this sort of labor. You get to Genesis 6, and God sees the wickedness, and he promises a flood that will wipe it out, but then you have this one emerging in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Could this be the seed that crushes the head of the serpent? Genesis 3.15, the sin problem is there, and the promise is given. There's going to be someone born, and he will crush the head of the serpent. Is this the one that's going to bring rest? Is that what Lamech is saying? Is that, is that what Noah, is that what his testimony is telling us? And then God comes to the ark, and we see it over and over again. And Noah obeyed the Lord. Noah did what he was told. Noah was obedient. He comes through, he's delivered, he comes out, he offers a sweet-smelling Sacrifice to the Lord is pleasing to the Lord in a way it is comforting and it relief to the Lord. A covenant is made with Is this the seed? Is this the promised one? And then, boom, the story is smacks you in the face. Here's Noah dropping naked out of his tent. And you're immediately. I think intentionally push back to, okay, the first Adam. Sin, it took God's gift to be used in a selfish and simple way. Immediately, you notice, I'm naked. I'm ashamed. I need someone to cover my shame. No way, he takes God's gifts, and here he's laying in his tent, and he's naked. He needs someone to come and cover his shame. Noah's not the one to do it. He's, he's covering just like everyone else. And it points us forward. From that point, we're still waiting on the seed. Because God's given us a gracious covenant, but it's only until the earth, as long as the earth remains. But the problem of my sin and my shame that needs cover, that somehow needs to be taken care of to be raised, that need still exists. Noah's not the one who's going to meet that need. That point's driven home, I think, by the last verse of Genesis 9. 
And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Chapter 5 walks through genealogies in that way. Kind of those obituaries. They lived that kid, they died. They lived that kid, they died. This is what life is like after the fall. We come to chapter 6 and Noah and bring it into faith. God uses in this powerful, wonderful way. But ultimately, Noah lived, he had kids, he died. It continues and continues and continues. And that lineage is broken, isn't it? The one seed by the Holy Spirit lived 33 years, he died. Three days later, he rose again. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, breathes intercession for us. He covers us with his blood. Our shame, our nakedness is covered by the Savior who knew no sin. That's our hope. That is Noah's hope. That is still our hope. But we look back on it now, but we still exist in this Noahic covenant of sin all around us, and God giving us gracious provision to still call on his I would just challenge you. It ends with blessing or cursing. We're made in God's image. He's given us immortal souls. The breath of life has been breathed into us. Will that experience be in God's presence, joy, evermore? Will you hear the word of God, believe it, and respond in faith? Will you realize that this? You're a sinner. We all are. We don't have what it takes to cover that shame. We need to look outside of ourselves. There's only one person, one place to find that. That's in Jesus Christ and his accomplishments for us. No, a great man of faith, pure of faith. He still needs to sin covered. The same is true for us. That's right. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. Might be Thank you.